0: You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast
1: for players by players, and all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass.
0: All right, everybody. Well, this is episode 65 of Arsenal Pass. Hayden is newly uh, newly engaged, apparently. Found out on the, uh, the old book. Um, Today we're gonna to be talking about choosing a hero in flesh and blood. And then parentheses, classic constructed. So we're not talking about
1: blitz heroes, just just CC today.
0: First, so hey, let me let's talk about your week in flesh
1: and blood. I had a Road to Nationals this weekend, which actually I had two Road to Nationals this past week. So a bit of Flesh and Blood, which is nice. New set Uprising, enjoying a lot. So I had a draft. I talked about it actually on the, the pod last week. I had a Road to Nationals draft coming up. Played that. That was some awesome fun. Uh, so two pods of draft into a top eight draft. And I got taken down in the quarterfinals by the one and only Tall Timmy. The Tall Timmy took me down. He actually has, up until a draft we did on Monday night, he had a 3-0 and limited record against me. So uh, got taken down by the Tall Timmy.
0: Yeah, to be frank, I would have been surprised if you had won.
1: <laughs> um, he, he, Paul's a good player. He's very underrated. So, so had that. And then I also had a classic constructed Rhodes Nationals on the Sunday as well and um managed to to take it out with viscerai so i had a lot of fun playing a viscerai deck which we're going to do a deck take on this week so look out for that
0: kind of just skipped over that one but you said paul and um that's actually news to me i i legitimately i guess i just figured his name was timmy um wow what a what a shock um so yeah for me i I played some i played some drafts this week uh some private drafts with locals so we got to do like three of them um we drafted one we would draft and then we play one game Um, and my takeaway from that was I need to draft less and play more (laughs) because my agency over the, like the agency over the draft format and the impact of me playing more and more seems to have like a massive diminishing return where it seems like on like the gameplay and the micro side, um, there's a lot of room to improve. And yeah, I think both Sasha and I came to that conclusion last time we were sort of reviewing draft VODs, um, which I thought was really interesting. Never had a format like that quite yet. And um yeah so now we're just going to move forward we're going to just bring our draft decks to testing and just kind of play more um certainly we'll circle back to to drafting and trying to uh you know figure out if we're forcing or what we're picking early and also just tier list pick of cards that's like super important um which we haven't gotten around to yet excited for that
1: quite a, it's quite a, like the the format the the little like bits and pieces that happen and the kind of edges and stuff it's very nuanced like i do think this format is going to go down as kind of one of the best formats for bringing players into the game like in terms of you know we've got players showing up on a wednesday at armory and hey we're doing a draft tonight but don't worry like this format is great for that you know like i think it will honestly go down as that which is cool but then from like the i guess looking to a competitive side like there's a lot of nuances and stuff so um also also really cool so yeah
0: Found it particularly interesting with, like, uh, in regards to draft archetypes. I found it to be a bit more shallow than other formats. They don't exist. Yeah, 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 okay. <laughs> yeah, I they felt like you were are. you were building it up to have, like, you know, yeah. the, the comma, but you know, and then we we're gonna hit that part. We'll talk about that later. Um. Anyway, why don't you why don't we just head into the news here?
1: Yeah, pretty light week on the news front. Uh, bulletins are slow on. Battle Hard in Portland has been announced and is happening on August twelfth. So if you are in the you know i guess it's the pacific northwest right if you're in that area uh make sure you get up to portland i think it's being done by fabled hobby uh, i think is their name and um 12th of august the 14th obviously battle hardened event there should be should be good time so if you are go and check it out i believe you can head to excuse me fabtc.com and register uh through their link there and then that's kind of it for like i guess announcements and news but brendan i think it's time for a fitness challenge update if people aren't aware brennan maybe just tell us just a little bit about the fab fitness challenge and i mean it's been it's day six for me i know it's day five for you it's really taken on a life of its own and just been an amazing uh, i was talking to flake i did the institute podcast and i was talking to flake about this but it's been an amazing experience already and i just want you know from your perspective maybe to, to give us a bit of an update and talk about what's happening in the fab fitness challenge any dates or anything that we should know about
0: Yeah. So day five should be coming out of the honeymoon phase of anybody's plans and goals starting to hit reality with it being not fun. So if you're pushing through now, it's the most important part. Um, in my opinion, you got to get over that 15 day hump. We just closed it out real strong, but yeah, the reception has, you know, you could, you could kind of assume that there would be some sort of reception. Some people would join and whatever, whatever, what what ended up happening is probably 10 X that at least. Um, it's absolutely incredible. Not only in the Arsenal Pass Discord, we have a few channels set up for the fitness challenge, but just on Twitter. People are posting videos. There's hashtag Fab Fitness Challenge. Like it's absolutely all over the place. I remember the first couple days I I actually spent like multiple hours on Twitter trying to go through some of the tags and go through like the hashtag Fab Fitness Challenge and I couldn't get through it all. Like there was so much. Um, and we've just seen some incre- incredible initiatives from specific community members as well, which has been awesome to see. In regards to the challenge and updates on RN, so tomorrow, actually, um, this will be the day before this gets released. So if you're hanging out, you might've missed it. In the Arsenal Pass uh, Patreon Discord, we're doing a group call um, tomorrow afternoon just to talk about where we are, our goals, what we're struggling with, what's easy, et cetera, et cetera, and just kind of hang out. Um, but yeah, in, from, from like a 10,000 feet perspective, we still got a lot of the month to go. Um, engagement is incredible. Keep it up; it's awesome. I try to reply to everything. I'm even trying to do like little personalized video replies. Um, but yeah, once we get closer to that end uh, to that end date of the month, I will be sort of reaching out to the community to ask for nominations and just recommendations for people that we should go ahead and reward with some of the prizes that we'll be giving out. I know in addition, there's going to be other content creators will be giving out uh, prizes as well. Mm-hmm. Team Covenant reached out to me, said they would give out some of their promos, um, and other content creators are doing the same. So, hey, and the update is going strong, incredible reception, and uh, the th- it's so much bigger than what I thought it would ever be and and me that, um, yeah, I'm just happy to see see it right now.
1: It's so cool. Like, um, you know, I want to give a big shout out to you, Brendan, because you're the one who's been the driving force behind this. People have asked me questions. Like, to be honest, I have done very little. it's It's Brendan who's been driving all this. He's set up everything. He's uh, been the engager. He's um, chatting with, like you say, other content creators to 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 push it out there. And I mean, the response is, like you say, it's wild. I think we have nearly two hundred people in our discord who have who have uh, signed up to to participate or you know are in the channels to participate. And I think between Twitter between, everyone else's discords, I know the attack action has one, you know, Flake has one on his, there's just, you know, so many people involved, which is just amazing to see. And I think it's, um, it's so cool that as a community, we can step outside of flesh and blood. And, you know, I think it is such a strong community. And this really shows it how supportive people are of of one another in this community. And that we can we can go beyond that and think about our our wellness, our health, um, you know, a a month to come together and and challenge and push each other to maybe achieve some things that we that we want to do, uh, no matter what those are from, you know, for me personally it's a really small change with like my sleep schedule and a bit of calorie counting this month to some really big um challenges that people are putting in front of themselves which is so cool to see and I can't wait to see not only what happens this month, but just, you know, I think we're gonna see some life changing impacts out of this for some people and that's that's amazing. So shout out to you, Brennan. Good, uh good stuff. Love to see it.
0: Yeah, if we could even contribute one percent to somebody making a positive change in their life for the long run, I think that everything is worth it. So it's incredible to see the effort that people are putting out and I'm super excited to keep continuing this month. Anyway, Hayden, speaking of calorie content, uh, this might not fit in your macros. We We got a old shrimpy on the barbie. What is it for the command and cookout section today?
1: Well, we have a great command and cookout because you reached out to the community this week, our Discord community and said, What should we podcast about this week? And this, this, what we are podcasting about today came directly from one of our patrons, um, which I'm sure you've got the name of Brendan, and I'm ready to shout out before we get to the main topic. But before we get to the Commander Cooker, I do just want to give a quick while we're shouting out our Patreon community. Massive shout out to all of our patrons, Uh, all that you allow us to do and enable us to do. I mean, things like uh, you know the fitness challenge, for instance. I mean, how we're able to drive that in our community. Um, You know, all the extra content that we're able to do from deck text to our monthly pod, which we just. Three days ago on Saturday, so when we record three, four days ago, we just did drop our uh, current monthly pod for the past month, which we talked about something that I think is is quite cool. Kind of this this idea that I've had and I talked to Brendan about, which is uh, reactive sort of. Uh, now I've forgotten already. It's a bit about proactiveness and and playing fish and Blood and how you can play your games a bit more proactively. I think and approach fish and Blood from a, a proactive standpoint. So yeah, just thank you to all of the patrons and uh, you know you're all amazing. Come on and cook out, Brendan, as you say on the grill or as the barbie as we call it over here got a question from the teclo foundry if you uh this came from discord as well check out the teclo foundry is on youtube does some really cool content around reiner and uh, dash that i've seen as well their question is how can the community have a more constructive criticism of gameplay and product design when should we recognize that it's not only beneficial for us as players but also lss i've noticed whenever people criticize fab it's met with hostility and constant comparisons to other games that are worse, usually Magic the Gathering is the example. And I don't think that's healthy a healthy attitude towards the game. On the flip side, usually the selling point of Flesh and Blood from what they've seen online and in conversations is to be overly negative about the other games on the market. So how can we learn to appreciate all TCGs out there and how their design helps us to get better at the game. Now, I thought this was a great question uh from the Ticla Foundry. It's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a level up related question. It's not based on fish and blood gameplay or metagame or anything specifically, but I do think this is a really great question because I personally, Brendan, for me, I think the discourse around the game has become a lot more constructive yeah, as better. we've gone through. I yeah, I think people are to be honest, I think there was a, when the game first started and we were early on, we had a lot of, you know, we had some loud voices in there. I don't want to say a lot, we had some loud voices in there who were really vocal about certain things. And I think as the game has grown and expanded, the community is kind of I don't know, like self-moderating. But, you know, people are people are able to talk constructively and say, you know, this is what's good about the game. This is what's not. And it's that's a good thing to have. You know, there are points about flesh and blood that are not good. There are things that do not work. There are things that have caused issues. But at the end of the day, and my, from my perspective, I think they're massively outweighed by the positives and what Alexis is doing now. I think going forward, I, I think this is really important discourse to have continued. So I want to like my kind of, I guess what I want to say from this question is, I think we should encourage this kind of discourse. But you know, if people are being jerks about it, just, you know, just let them know, hey, you know, don't really, not really necessary. Don't need to talk about it that way. Let's be constructive. We don't need to be purely negative all all time. Let's talk about, like I love, for instance, when like Tarek talks about the game, right? I think. He's critical of the game, but he does it in a very fair way. He also loves the game and he uh, looks at it from, I think, a very, uh, you know, he takes a lens of being very constructive with his criticism as well, which I think is great. So, and I think you do the same, Brendan, when when you talk about some of the, the pitfalls you've had about, you know, let's talk about uh, registration for events in North America. I think you've been very constructive, always offered ways to maybe fix those problems, come with some solutions. And I think that's really important. So for me, to answer uh, the Tecla Foundry's question, i think that the discourse has become a lot better and i think people are understanding how to you know talk more and allow people who have voices and have important things to say that are criticisms or are positives of the game you know boosting those people up and some of the louder voices that we maybe had at the start that were uh, i guess maybe tore down other games you know oh, it's not magic whatever it's not Yu-Gi-Oh, it's not this um or comparing comp- contrasting it's a very different game and i think all TCG players have different histories. All Flesh and Blood players have different histories. Brendan, you had you know, little to no history apart from Magic. Other players come from five or six different ones. I came from Magic. You know, everyone has different backgrounds. and I think it's important that uh, we kind of recognize that as well.
0: Yeah, it's pretty incredible how <laughs> we didn't degenerate from the initial sort of I love it. loud so voices lucky. and aggressive criticism that we had in the early days, even in like the mid early days, <laughs> a couple of sets in. But now, yeah, it was weird when I was hearing this question, I had to like, I was actually thinking, I was like, have I even seen this stuff recently? And the answer is actually no. Surprisingly, does it exist? Probably. Um, but for some reason, it's not rising to the top. Where this, that kind of criticism, you know, extreme criticism being very far onto one side and really holding your opinion in terms from like a content creator angle can, can really work. Usually it does tend to rise to the top in terms of views, uh, but we, we just don't see a lot of that. And I think that that helps sort of the overall sentiment for the game and like the general thoughts about design and uh, current OP tends to be more positive because most people are talking positively about it. And I think fundamentally a lot of us just have a lot of faith in the studio. Um, You know, a lot of us got into the game for that reason. And we ultimately think they'll steer us in the right direction. So sometimes things will be a bit suboptimal, but I find the flesh and blood community to be very understanding. And I do think that it is important in regards to other games and tearing down other games for the sake of fab. I feel like we've sort of outgrown that, right? In the beginning, it was kind of popular because, you know, it's like Magic is, you'd say like Magic is high variance and they don't have an OP and it's like all this stuff is just like bad about Magic, so therefore you should play FAB. I think it's more like all these things are great about FAB, so therefore you should come play FAB. I think that many games can exist at once um, and that sort of harmonious existence just is better for all of them, right? we don't, there's there's definitely enough people who aren't TCG players who can become TCG players who don't need to start, you know, putting down other communities. So I actually think that this stuff has trended in the right direction in Flesh and Blood. Um, and I think it will continue for a while.
1: Yeah, I, I think so too. Look, and, to, and I don't want to dismiss uh, the Tickle Foundry's question. I think There is definitely some of that still out there. And my answer to the original question, which is how can the community have a more constructive criticism of gameplay and product decisions? I think it's to be led by the community, to be honest, is to engage in those conversations and have them in respectful manners. And yourself, you know, Tickler Foundry, as someone who creates content, I think that's, you know, you can help do that as well. So, um, But I do think that the community has driven this, right? Like, I guess people who, you know, want to speak badly about the game, more than entitled to, but I, I think sometimes... What we have is like, you know, like you say, I think it's just become less and less in terms of this like overly negative perspective because everyone loves the game who's kind of engaged in this conversation. And as much as they might have critiques and, and, and positives, they're, they're done in, a I think, quite a respectful manner, which is, is great to see. So yeah, I hope we continue to always have critiques and criticism and, and constructive feedback because that's super important to the flow of the game. And I, I think, and I, I, I mean, I know because they've told me, Legend Story Studios, listen to what the community is saying. So it is it is a really important part of that feedback loop.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Cool. Well, thank you for the question. The Ticlo Foundry. If you want to get your questions in to the commander cookout section, you can do it in whatever way you want. Uh, email us at ArsenalPassfab at gmail.com, drop us a a note on Twitter, drop it in the YouTube comments below or on our Discord. And um, you know, the Ticlo Foundry's question wasn't originally a commander cookout, but I repurposed it and we thank you for your question. So Brendan, pass over to you main topic this week yeah
0: so the main topic this week comes from parker in our discord and it is choosing a hero in flesh and blood um so there's obviously a lot that goes into this hayden on multiple sides of this kind of the spectrum right you have the more role play or even casual side of the spectrum and then you have this sort of competitive and spike just just want to win at all costs right i think most players probably exist somewhere in the middle that being said, I think the goal of us talking about each hero as we go down this list is more to give you an idea of generally how they play and what sort of buckets and archetypes they kind of fit into. So if you are coming from another game, maybe like Magic the Gathering, we can split things into you know three macro groups, right? Like um, control, midrange, and aggro. And obviously there's a lot of subgroups that come off of that. But just helping you understand from like 10,000 feet, it's like if I'm going to play Azalea, what am I in for, right? Am I going to be playing a control deck? probably not at this case anyway I have a a couple questions to start this off with you uh first and it's do you think it's better and we've answered this question actually quite a few times over the uh the year and at whatever time we've been doing this podcast but do you think it's better to choose one hero and stick to it or should you play as many heroes as possible let's talk about this from two angles right from the competitive point of view and then from just like a pure casual game uh uh game enjoyment point of view
1: all right, I'm going to answer your question, but then I'm going to flip the script on you quickly, and I, and I want to ask you a question on the back of this, which I think is super important to this episode, because I think as well in this episode, you know, you could take this from a, this is a great way to look at what hero might fit you, right? But it's also great if you play other heroes to to consider, you know, what is the beal and end all, or where could you go in other classes and heroes in this game? But anyway, I'll get to that. I... This is, I mean, yeah, like you say, we've answered this question multiple times and my answer, I wouldn't say it always changes, but I always have different thought processes about whether you should choose one hero and stick with it or whether you should play as many as possible. And I think ultimately it just, it depends on the person. That's, that's going to be my answer. I think it was my answer last time as well. I'm I'm sticking to it because for, I think it depends what you want to get out of the game first and foremost, right? Like if you want to play this game at maybe a, a, a store level, kitchen table level to a skirmish level. Sticking with one hero might be the thing that, that you want to do, and that might work really well for you. You might also want to explore different heroes. You know, each said, I'm going to pick a hero to play or a class to play, and I'm going to learn more about that. On the flip side, you could be a super competitive player, and you could also pick one hero or one class to play and really dedicate yourself to that. But you might also be open to playing other things. I think once you get to maybe a high competitive level, you do need to be a little bit more open, at least because you need to understand how other heroes work or how other classes work sometimes you might just need to make a decision to to play a different hero class if you if you do want to do well. But I think if you want to choose between sticking to a hero, maybe playing somewhere in between where you have two to three heroes or having, you know, playing all the heroes, you should decide what your end goal is and what you want to get out of it. But I think for the majority of people, I think it's having a main hero, but then having, you know, a handful of heroes that you can play outside of that. And maybe it even is a case of like one per set or something. Mm hmm can can I flip a question to you though Brendan I, actually first of all what do you think about this and then I'll, I'll I'll question you all
0: right I gotta preface this with
1: I asked the questions here Hayden not you no
0: um so yeah what do I think uh, it's pretty much on the same line um I, I'm gonna approach it from two the the two angles right so from casual perspective I do think that it's it's quite rewarding to play a lot of heroes because you just play flesh and blood in vastly different ways that's a good thing about this game is like a mech just plays you know if you're using items and things like that will play fundamentally different from like a rune blade deck or something like that wizard is just on its in a whole other universe in terms of like how it actually plays the game and tries to interact prism is very different i think it can be fun to get that different perspective of the game and just play it in different ways from a one-hero perspective, obviously it's very economical, you'll be very comfortable, and you'll probably get pretty good at your hero, even if you're playing at a store level or a kitchen level. If you're just playing one hero um, and you stay up to date and you're actually trying to improve, you're probably going to get pretty good. Um, from a competitive perspective, I if we were if we were to go back like two, three sets, yes, I would tell you you should probably be playing every single hero nowadays there's so many heroes that i feel like you should know how to play every hero you should understand how they work but you should specialize in some and not necessarily a hero, but maybe a class maybe an archetype something like that i find that most testing groups approach it from that perspective for competitive play because the game has just I don't know. Every time they've, every time they add a new hero, it's almost like it's not a linear kind of addition to the game's complexity. I wouldn't say it's quite exponential, but it's somewhere in between. It adds a lot, right? There's so much depth right. to each hero, so I think that specializing, uh, but still making sure that you're well-rounded as a player in terms of your understanding of the game, uh, I think that's the best way to approach it competitively.
1: I think I think for a competitive return, I think you're right. Like I think this idea of knowing you know, a few heroes inside now, and, and then partnering yourself with people who know some of the other maybe meta players inside now. And, and then, you know, if something else rises in the meta because things change drastically, like all of a sudden, you know, uh, Bolton becomes one of the, the premier decks in the format because a, a card gets printed or something happens with the format, then, you know, learn that, right? Like you have the tools then to in the space and the sort of like, I guess the yeah, like basically the, the, the mental real estate to be able to learn that because it's like, well, actually, Bolton's come up and also Levy come up this format, but I, I played a bit of brute. Like, I, I understand Levy to a degree. Now I'm going to spend some time with Bolton. And these are just, yeah. You know, I'm just using examples of two heroes I would love to see be good in the meta, but that's fine. Uh, <laughs> and what could happen. But yeah, I, I think it's it's very interesting and i know you want to talk a bit about i guess like the benefits and stuff of that so i might let you do that before i before i question you about what i wanted to ask about
0: so we kind of touched on it but i just want to i just want to shine a light on some competitive players that actually masked that kind of mostly play one hero and actually do it to success in Meadows where that hero might not be the best um, so we're looking at like Kale McCreeth for Bravo and Guardian um, we have Yuki Yuki Bender for Lexi and there's probably a plethora more Alex4 for Kano a top 8 of the Pro Tour as well he's actually been playing Kano since the beginning because And I'm just going to tell a little anecdote here because it's freaking hilarious I used to run a Discord online webcam tournament every single Monday that me and Dante Fico would stream and Alex Alex Ford playing them every single time. And he kept making the top eight with Kano, but he would. His webcam was his freaking phone on portrait mode, so not landscape, portrait mode, and then he used a piece of printer paper and then nerf darts for his uh for his tunic counters. And he would not fix it. I was like, Alex, if I've got if you're if you're gonna play the finals, you gotta fix your dang setup. It's so bad. And he's like, Nah, I know, man, I'm gonna do it. And he just he was crushing even back then, but he was playing Kano, and I think that's like his main hero. And he takes it to a pro tour to top eight, wins the team calling, also playing K- Kano. Uh, there's examples of people. You know, really specializing in one hero and seeing a lot of success with it, regardless of what everybody else in the game thinks, or regardless of what the what direction the meta is going.
1: Yeah, I will. I will shout out though with Alex. You know, with Alex, one thing is that I know in the lead up to that pro tour, he was testing chain a lot. Like he was prepared to play a different hero and learn it inside and out and be ready for that pro tour on you know, I guess a perceived meta deck, right? So I think there's a balancing act, right? And I know Kale has played some. Kale might be the ultimate sort of interpretation of that. And I think Yuki, uh, she was the same. She was looking at playing uh, Chain and other things and then, you know, defaulted to, I guess, like a comfort pick, something that felt really natural. And and that is the advantage of being, I guess, a, a specialist or at least having a main hero is like, well, you know, the meta feels kind of like even. I think there's a deck, you know, that I could swap to and play. But actually, my, my main hero has like a reasonable time in this format. And I can build it in a way to attack that. And I feel super comfortable playing it. And that is one of the great things about this game is that you can do that, is that in almost any metagame, your main hero that you may or may not have can probably be somewhat viable. Now, you know, I know for like me, for me, this is Reinar and, and sometimes this feels like difficult, but generally I'm like, yeah, I could play it. Um, but for you know me personally, I, I like playing a spread. I like playing to uh, different interactions and options. So it, I think it depends on ultimately who you are as a person, what you want to get out of it and um, how comfortable you feel. Mm-hmm. So Brendan, I want to ask you a quick question before we start diving into these things because you've you've given us some beautiful notes for today. I have a question for you. What is choosing a hero in flesh and blood? Like very, like, very fundamental and basic, but like what, you know, we've talked about, I guess the, the perks of being a, a specialist versus maybe broad church, but what does it actually mean to choose a hero in flesh and blood? Like are you choosing um a, a playstyle? are you choosing a um, identity are you choosing a specific set of cards like what are you choosing when it comes to choosing a hero in flesh and blood
0: so the answer is probably all those things but to drill down into it i think you're you're choosing an arsenal of playstyles, right a a sort of toolbox but ultimately you're picking a way you're going to spend your time while you play flesh and blood um so you need to find a play experience that you find rewarding um we can boil that down to just winning, and that's fine, right? But for some people, if the best deck is maybe Old Him Fatigue and it's just blocking out, maybe that's just not fun to them, right? So they might have more fun playing Kano, comboing people, not interact with their opponents. Some people like, might like the most interaction possible, so they want to be playing these sort of mid-rangey decks or even play Aggro Mirrors or something like that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's if you're going to dedicate your free time to Flesh and Blood, it's what experience are you looking for?
1: Mm-hmm. love it love it i think it's a very good way to start and my last question brendan before because we've got some amazing things to dive into from a class perspective and a hero perspective if i'm an avid flesh and blood player and a competitive player and i'm an arsenal pass weekly listener uh you know what might i get out of what we're about to talk about in this pod versus maybe i'm a newer player maybe just give me the kind of two perspectives so i feel like you've built out a pod here that we're going to talk about where you've got stuff for everyone but maybe just explain that a little bit
0: so from a newer play perspective it it really is exactly what i said it's how do you want to spend your time when you play this game um and a lot of newer players don't have time to sort of figure out how all the different heroes work how they play and maybe just a little tidbit about their history because we can't avoid that on arsenal pass so how this is more of a more of a pot around how do you want to find your identity right and how do you want to win the game for more seasoned players um, we're going to be breaking these down into their nuance, right? Really diving into sort of the available the available archetypes for these heroes. So for things like Bolton, a lot of us know Bolton Sabres because we sat on the other side of a, of a Lumina combo, but there's actually other Bolton decks available, right? There? Yeah, there yeah. there is Bolton decks and there's, there's Bolton Sabre decks that are actually successful outside of just comboing on aggro decks or something like that because mm-hmm. you, you need a strategy to be able to beat the Guardians, right? The rest of the meta. It's like, how do they do that? It's usually not with the Sabres. Um, so we're just going to be dissecting the heroes a little bit and talking about their available sort of paths to victory
1: yeah you can get some ideas and some spice from us that's for sure so nope I just wanted to to, to preface the episode with that because um, I think from the title people might be like well is this the pod for me you know I'm an experienced player but I, I think we've got some stuff in here that's going to be exciting for you from, So us uh, so take it away my fellow podcast host yeah
0: Yeah, so i talked about this uh really quickly but hayden i would define a lot of tcgs by these three pillars of play right control mid-range and aggro i just want to quickly ask you do you believe that these three sort of
1: styles exist in flesh and blood oh my favorite question yes and no is my answer (laughs) because i think To an extent, they do, but not in the way that we might think about it coming from a different game. So if you came from, let's just say you came from Magic, so that's my background. The idea of a mid-range deck is very different in Magic. I think it's about its value orientation. It's about uh, selecting cards either on a defensive or offensive standpoint that get you value card advantage usually. And that card advantage is not the same in Flesh and Blood. So I think a mid-range deck looks very different. Like I would describe a mid-range deck in Flesh and Blood more as a deck that can like flex and do a defensive and an offensive job but it's not necessarily about value, it's about that game plan. I would say mid-range decks often are coined as like a deck that can do both, you know, like get, get you get you a guy that can do both, you know, like that is kind of what mid is in this game, I think more to an extent than uh, literally playing right in the middle of the format, to be honest. Um, they might also be a deck that can kind of disrupt, so I often think of like Lexi builds or Reinar builds as, as mid-range decks. Um, that's kind of the biggest difference I see, and then I think the control and aggro axes of it are a lot more traditional to other decks where aggro is like kill your opponent as fast as possible with like the most efficient threats, right? Versus control is like own the game, play, you know, reasonably defensive, find avenues and then eke out advantage over a long, long, long game or to a a win condition at the end.
0: Yeah. And I agree with you for the most part. I think that with control, there is like a... It's hard to call it a sub-strategy of fatigue because it, I feel like yep. it doesn't really fall into control. It's more attrition, and it is kind of unique to Flesh and Blood because of the way our resource system works and how we expend cards to deal damage and they aren't persistent. Um but yeah, outside of that, I think it absolutely it, it does exist. It does exist, but it's in Flesh and Blood's own way. So hey, now I want to talk about some sub pillars of play. So these are things like Cheerios decks. So that was famously sort of in the Briar deck back in uh, Tales of Arya. We've got combo decks, things like Saber Bolton combo, Arcano combo that showed up at the Pro Tour, Fatigue and Attrition. This could be your ultim deck, but honestly, they can this can slot into most most heroes that have a lot of armor can block three and maybe have some disruptive effects. Um, next is Tempo. Tempo exists in things like Lexi, like Ice Lexi, but not even fully ice, right? You can have just be splashing a bit of ice for the channel like Frigid and things like Prism. Like Prism um, is developing persistent board states but these uh, these auras are a form of tempo, right? Because your opponent has to expend action points to kill them which is a finite resource unless they've teched for it and then they can get more but still there's only so much in their deck Um, and then last here I put was invest now, win later. So this is kind of like mid range dash setting up items, uh, kind of, and this is a stretch, but you could call this chain, right? So you're building up your soul shackles. Maybe you make some subpar plays to put some reds at the bottom of your deck to banish later. Um, really just building up to sort of a critical maximum of power where you're going to outvalue your opponent in the late game
1: i think bolton could actually certain builds of bolton can actually go on that last tier you have there as well you know you just you're building up your soul over the, the course of a game to then power out three four five like really big turns towards the end of the game so
0: so first off I, we're oh were you gonna say something sir oh are
1: we are we still talking about the sub pillars because i do have some comments on the sub pillars if that's all right just quickly and i go think the it. one i wanted to just quickly comment on was tempo because tempo is both like it's it's this like elusive kind of concept in flesh and blood and it is something that's grander than just i think like a, a sub pillar but i also think it's a great call out because those two like specific decks you talked about right there the lexi and the kind of prism aspect they probably rely i think every deck to a certain extent relies on some form of tempo um, except for maybe controlled decks but even then uh, whereas these decks it's like they're kind of built around it right like they're trying to find play patterns within the game where you're trying to find these ways to basically create tempo and hold tempo with the cards you play with the the play patterns where you look like you know present back-to-back turns of auras to try and like create this almost momentum and i think that is maybe even more so than tempo i'd call those decks like momentum decks um but i just wanted to, to kind of comment on that
0: yeah. So starting with everybody's favorite class, particularly Hayden's, we're start with Ranger here. So Ranger in general uh, tends to struggle against, uh, I mean, Lexi. So Lexi in particular will struggle against Guardian decks, but Azalea tends to struggle against everything. Your armor generally doesn't block very well, um, and outside of that you don't really have a weapon that can deal damage. So you can get fatigued. Uh, there is sometimes an inherent... Uh, fail rate with the deck when you don't draw arrows because there is a balance between your arrow attacks and your non-attacks and sometimes it's not you get all non-attacks you can't do anything on that turn anyway diving into azalea here my definition for azalea is like this is the jimmy deck um so if you like to try to make something work that is fundamentally underpowered azalea is probably for you um you're going to be utilizing your arsenal to cast arrows manipulate the talk of your deck for big payoffs of things like deck dealer uh your armor doesn't block well like we said but you you have extra defense reactions theoretically in the form of traps they just end up not being that good uh azalea is the it's kind of the pet deck of flesh and blood I've, I've met more players that only play azalea than any other class
1: yeah maybe i feel like i feel like bolton is like pretty up there these days as well and livia livia's gained a lot of traction
0: yeah, so I mean Azalea, I guess it's kind of a mid-range deck. It does have it does have disruption aspects of things like fatigue shot, um, and obviously like hamstring shot, make your opponent pay extra resources. But you also have the version where you can go with the red line, uh, the red line weapon. You're aggressive and you also playing some of these disruptive cards, but it's not really your core game plan. Mostly trying to aggro out your opponent, um, and then you're theoretically strong against. Uh, a lot of like you theoretically strong gets a lot of decks because of your toolbox cards like fatigue shock looks pretty good against starva sleep dart looks pretty good against chain but unfortunately you generally just end up kind of being unfavored against everything at least that's been the history of the deck so far
1: yeah, i mean if you want to talk about ranger as a class and i guess choosing a hero in flesh and blood azalea in particular is definitely i think it's not even a debate is the weaker of the two rangers just because there's redundancy in the way that the the heroes work uh lexi has like pure upgrades on that that has access to voltaire which is a, a very strong weapon um so i think there is there's is kind of that aspect i think there's more to talk about when it comes to lexi but i just i guess what i'll say with azalea is if you want to choose azalea in flesh and blood i think what you're looking to do is you're looking to do something that other people aren't doing in events you're going to at your armories etc you're looking to do really funky kind of like combo setups uh i mean to be honest you can do a lot of different things so you can purely be aggressive with on hit effects when ledger is a very powerful card you can build around that but the other thing you can look to be doing is doing these really like kind of funky in-game things with you know like rapid fire or the boots and try shot and all these kind of combo based aspects and and that can be kind of your prerogative right of trying to find out how to break that and how to make that work and you given give meta and I think that is that's a that's a concept and uh, I guess a, a draw that a lot of well not a lot of people but at least some people are looking for and I think that's probably if you are looking at Azalea that's what you're going for it's not going to be the most competitive hero it's uh, i think it's hard to there's not a lot of play space and design space to work within apart from that kind of combo aspect because you have the bow and you have arrows and you need to play those Mm -hmm.
0: so next up is the modern day ranger which is lexi so lexi is particularly interesting because i feel like lexi has three definitive archetypes that are all competitive right i think there is a premier aggressive deck a premier control deck and a premier tempo deck, kind of, right? So you're just splashing a bit of this ice. Um, so you could kind of do it all, and I feel like Lexi... You know, we've seen, we've seen actually a lot of versions be competitive. I remember Lightning Lexi was out pretty early in Tales of Aria. And then more recently, we've seen a lot of Ice Lexi to combat the Rune Blades. But, um, you know, Michael Hamilton specifically at a recent Ohio 10,000 or sorry, 10K, I don't know, 10,000K, 10K was playing a Fuse with Lexi. So there's a lot of ways to play the hero, uh, you know, utilizing that double arsenal slot, very powerful weapons. And what's sort of your, your view of Lexi?
1: Yeah, I, I see it. I don't really see a control build of Lexi personally. I see the kind of really heavy ice build as as literally this kind of momentum deck. And uh, I, I would call it like a, if you're familiar with magic, like a hate bears deck. Like it is a deck that preys on decks for skimping on resources, for trying to play five card hands. That is what I see as this kind of more controlling Lexi. And I would call it like a, a hate deck effectively. I wouldn't actually call it a control deck personally. So I think there's that. I think there's aggressive decks. And I think there's... um. A kind of hybrid of those things where i want to i want to prey on my opponent and i want to have some ability to really take advantage of you know them trying to do five cut hands need high resources and that's kind of like i think those fuseless lists that like splash um splash the ice i think those are kind of the decks that do that and then you have this like purely aggressive sort of build and shell which is like lightning deck like a super aggressive and i think uh if you're i guess if i think fundamentals of like why you might want to choose that in flesh of blood i think lexi is a great hero to choose if you are fundamentally an aggro player or an aggro tempo player that likes the ability to interact with the opponent and sort of cause them some issues, right? Make them interact with you. I think that is what Lexi is great at and that's why it's a big appeal and a big draw to some people, because of the fact that either you play lightning or ice, you fuse it, your arrows have on hit effects and it makes your opponent have to make decisions and uh, interact with you. And you get to play in that space from super aggressive to a little bit slower and a little bit more taxing, a uh, taxing sort of hate style dick. Um, and I think that's what the draw is. Uh, plus this ability to just do really cool things, really explosive turns, really big turns with three of a kind and, and things like that, I think is the, the big draw and appeal for something like Lexi.
0: And I think from a competitive standpoint, being a hate deck, Lexi sort of always has the potential opportunity to take the meta by storm, right? Yeah. You know, it, especially if something degenerate is going on, particularly when it's something degenerate regarding aggro decks, like linear aggressive decks, Lexi can really come and surprise, uh, surprise a lot of people. That being said, if you're like picking your hero, in flesh and blood lexi's going to give you a lot of options of different styles of play like you can play the aggressive deck you can play the heavy ice deck where you can play somewhere in between and all are pretty viable and relatively powerful you are going to struggle against some things like illusionist and guardian occasionally but i remember we saw lexi back in the starvo meta not to as much success but it does have those it has access to those toolbox ranger cards like fatigue shot um so you know maybe load it up on six or nine of those and if next thing you know star wars abilities were coming in for half you know there's there's an opportunity there and i think that you know ice got a few more cards here in the recent set of uprising that we're going to see a lot of lexi moving forward especially as we have some of these uh these decks that have been powerful over the past few months and even year start to uh, actually living legend out the the opportunity for lexi only grows
1: yeah and you get a, you get to play in I, best, I think basically every space is an aggressive deck. So you can play this purely super aggressive deck that doesn't care about taxing. Or, you know what? Hey, the meta is really ripe for hate and taxing. Well, I, I played the ice build. Or, I, you know, this, maybe this is just this like snapshot death dealer deck that you just kind of go ham with like we've seen people try and play that in the past it's like lightning deck so um it's super interesting i want to i you know I've, i want to try and give a bit of spice to to everyone so i guess the, the last thing i would add is like arctic incarceration is a really interesting card uh in all three colors i think and i'm interested to see how that card kind of impacts the um the game moving forward
0: yeah and while while azela does have access to the to the, to the Legendary Hood. Azalea, or sorry, Lexi is going to be the one that is playing with two Arsenal. So you get Use two Arsenal it. slots. Um, the one that's
1: going to be using it.
0: <laughs> so, on to my favorite class, Hayden, which is Warrior. Warrior, the, uh, the OG sort of... Bully of flesh and blood. Thank God it has fallen so far from its throne. But warrior, the reasons why warrior has struggled is that I think in the as the game has started to uh, get more of a card pool is because a lot of decks, uh, not a lot of decks, but particularly like rune blood decks, seem like they have gotten like a linear increase in power level set by set. Where when it comes to things like warrior, it feels like you've gotten more ways to play the game um, rather than just increasing the the power the raw power level of your current strategy. And I think because of that, it hasn't scaled quite as well. On top of that, you generally have trouble into Prism if you're playing Dorinthia So we can go ahead and start with Dorinthia here. This was one of the best decks in Welcome to Wraith. So Alpha uh, and persisted all the way up until Crucible of War. Uh, saw a lot of play. And I think if you're if you're picking Dorinthia and if you want to play Dorinthia a lot of times you're you're going to be presenting your opponent with just tough equations right they've got to figure it out you've got a lot of attack reactions you've got on hit triggers and your opponent is going to have to do a lot of the mental work at the same time the deck can be very rewarding especially on the pitch stacking aspect setting up things like time snap potions have these huge turns with things like steel blade supremacy or glint quicksilver plus twinning blade um it was actually one of my favorite decks back in not necessarily class constructed and alpha i thought it was pretty fun but in the blitz format there was like a very pure version of tall warrior that i thought was particularly interesting
1: yeah i mean i think if you're looking for a hero that really bases their game plan around their weapon like entirely you're, you know the thing you love about flesh and blood from what you've seen so far is like weapon play then i mean warrior is going to be the class for you i think in terms of just it's so both both heroes revolve around that so much but Dorinthia, especially, and I think one of the, the really cool things about Dorinthia is with the you know glistening steel blade and some of these new cards that have come about. Um, you have, like you say, it's actually differentiating game plans. I remember mean, we wouldn't have said this before. Like Crucible would say, ah, it just gets more of the same, right? Like mm. the two-handed weapons didn't seem viable, and now it does, and and plus different ways to play the game. The the other thing I want to say about Dorinthia as well is I think there's even more unexplored territory to go in terms of this kind of way to play Dorinthia. It is it is an aggressive deck generally. It can play somewhat towards more of a mid-range where it can sort of play off like two or three card hands okay three card hands mostly um but this you know <laughs> there's a card brendan that i love and i'm sure you know exactly what card i'm talking about mm. uh that i think we haven't seen <laughs> unified decree is a card we haven't seen explored much in, in durinthia and i think this idea of like really heavy attack reactions is something we haven't seen in a while and i think that's a, another potential way to play Dorinthia that you know rather than i guess this um Uh, go wide or go tall necessarily you actually play at instant speed and, and take advantage of the fact that people are reducing their amount of defense reactions that they're playing
0: yeah and i think from a competitive perspective um in lieu of recent living legends and prism on the chopping block like prism is very close to being living legend i think doranthia might make a comeback you know we've seen a lot of these very powerful rune blades start to maybe come out of the format we saw starvo come out and you know prism was really the, i think that was the deck that was policing Durinthia. Um prism coming out we could see doranthia come back into the competitive meta now i'm gonna let you lead this one off because apparently it's your favorite hero but talk me about Bolton.
1: I do really like Bolton a lot. Uh, I think we've seen Bolton be perceived as the combo deck traditionally. You know, it's a sabres-based combo deck, and that's what we've seen. Uh, people have them the most success with, so it makes sense, right? Especially Roads National season one and I think even ProQuest season one. Uh, around lumina Ascension and um and the Sabres combo it's pretty you know you say it's pretty uninteractive, right it's uh it's about setting up a, a game state with your soul finding the combo pieces that you have and then going off with it like that is kind of what the the combo generally does you're looking at like upwards of 30 damage depending on what what sort of combination of cards you have and i think if you are someone who likes to play aggressive decks with a combo twist to it like bolton is going to be a hero that you really look towards but the cool thing i really like about bolton and, and i i wish it was i do have some reservations because i think the mechanic the game design of soul mm-hmm. when it comes to bolton just doesn't quite work it's just like the, it's actually card disadvantage which is really difficult in this game to you know we talked about not having card advantage well you have a hero here that actually has card disadvantage so it's it's really displeasing um, but I do think, you know, Raiden is a very strong weapon. It's a zero cost weapon. It can it's always procced by the those natural play lines. Um as well as I think, you know, you do have this kind of you can play a two handed a, a bolt and sabers or even maybe an axes deck that doesn't combo, it just looks to just have raw power and Really strong turns with some of the new cards that you have out there. And maybe the soul isn't the be all and end all of how to play Bolton. Maybe you take advantage of that for some of your really powerful cards like um, Celestial Cataclysm. And, uh, you know, I think about cards like Via the Vanguard and these sorts of things. But otherwise, maybe it's just a, a tool that you can utilize where necessary to give go again, uh, but you don't actually build around it. That's the thing I'm most interested about Bolton moving forward because I think to try and build this pure Raiden based deck around your soul is, is, is card disadvantage. So it's, it's really tough to get away with.
0: On the competitive side, uh, Bolton Combo is good when it's faster than the Meta's premier aggro decks. And when it can have a secondary strategy to beat other meta decks like Prism and Guardian, Prism might not be an issue moving forward, but maybe Jermai presents the same problems. Um, when it can do that, we do see it have success. So we saw it have a reasonable amount of success back in the Monarch um, class constructed season. And since then, it's seen sort of niche uh, niche results in this since then but there are some players that really stick to to that bolton uh that bolton hero and um continue to put up results with uh, with the deck. So um, regardless of what we say, we, we are pretty we're pretty. Well, I'm pretty infamous for hating on Bolton, specifically the combo deck. It is, it is a good deck when, when that combo is faster than the fastest deck. If you're playing that combo and you're still slower, then probably not where you want to be, but I could see Bolton come back into the format. And that it is a fundamentally powerful thing that you're doing when you are, you know, double looming meaning or triple looming meaning and just like kind of OTK your opponent. So it's something you always to keep a lookout
1: for. It's, it's an, it's an aggro deck that has, access to a combo and also has access to do some really cool sit up and good five gut hands if that's the thing you're looking for Bolton's probably going to be in your warehouse
0: yeah, so now we're going to move on to the Guardians. So Guardians have traditionally been seen as like the control decks of Flesh and Blood. Uh, back in Alpha, there was obviously the Bravo deck, which was sort of an amalgamation back then because just had mid-range decks. Um, but then, you know, we have Old Him, get, Old Him gets printed with this incredible hero ability and this ridiculous armor suite to back it up. Uh, but generally seen as the fatigue and the control decks of choice, that being said, I mean, Guardian is based around big attacks, right? So big attacks, disruption, your... You're forcing your opponent to interact with you. You're taking away their uh, their ability to get go again. You're ripping cards from hand, et cetera, et cetera. Guardian decks tend to be the decks that C Pummel played the most as well. Um, just a little <laughs> anecdote there. Uh, so first, heading in is Bravo. So hey, I know you like this deck a lot back in the day, and it's it's seen it's seen consistent success. Not not it hasn't been the best deck I think in quite a while, but. I think we we always see we always see OG Bravo putting up putting up results maybe not top 8s, but top 32s top 16s and metas where you think it would happen would not even have the the sort of uh, like base success, and we've seen it put up results. So I think it's just super, super powerful. Um, the big attacks with on end effects. So this is you have that you know, your specialization with crippling crash. You you're able to search up um, cards as well, tutor them up, and then yeah, your opponent. If your opponent's playing an aggressive deck, so I think we saw this played a lot into chain back in the day. They have to do like they can't just not block right. So you don't necessarily have to be faster than the fastest aggro deck, right? If you're hitting them with crippling crushes, you're spinal crushing them, et cetera, et cetera. Their decks can basically not function when they get hit by those hit triggers.
1: Yeah, I think if you're looking for a deck for speed, Guardian isn't the deck for you. Although it can be, like, it can be quick. It can put out damage. It's not. It's not the be all and end all of what Guardian's trying to do. Like you say, instead, it's about it's about um, trading. I guess on-hit effects for damage and finding points in the game to push that. And Bravo is really cool because of the the dominate ability, right? Like mm-hmm. you can always kind of craft this game state where you can potentially push through damage to have an on-hit effect hit. But it, it is it's about it's about heavy hitters. It's about big attacks. It's about uh having a really strong, I guess, defensive suite as well. You know, obviously a lot of good defense reactions, the equipment, and then a weapon or a range of weapons that you can kind of rely on depending on the hero you're looking at to to basically leverage that. And I think. If you are looking for a deck that can be more control orientated in general, but also have this ability to play out like really big attacks and, and heavy hitters, um, you know, if you, I think about like big green decks and magic the gathering and stuff like that like this is the kind of deck that like i think people should be should be generally looking towards and one of the the cool things i think about you know again just trying to add some spice in about things that i've thought about with guardian in the past and bravo in particular i think one of the things that's really underexplored with guardian is the auras like they just haven't been looked at you know we know how powerful auras and and i guess uh transient abilities on the field are and there's a lot of them available to you in guardian and a lot of things that can do you know, powerful things, uh, Titan, um I was Towering Titan is uh, you know, you know, can you set that up for just this huge turn that pushes an on hit effect that has dominate the opponent literally like, well, okay, I have to block with one card, but then I have no turn next turn for whatever reason. You know, like you push damage and you get the on hit effect, or, you know, you're drawing cards with a Bolden and stuff like this. So um there's a lot of design space and exploration that can be used in the Guardian space as well. Uh as well as it just kind of defaulting to this more defensive orientated deck that can kind of push through damage.
0: Yeah, so Bravo, and this of course is by default as well, has, has uh, struggled with the
1: ability to go wide
0: and not having a lot of class cards that enable them to do that. But with recent additions mm-hmm. like Zealous Belting and Rousey Agents, they have definitely helped this. Obviously, you Obviously, have, have time Skippers as well. As a result of this, your sort of boogeyman if you're playing Guardian is generally illusionist and particularly Prism. Um, Guardian has really struggled into that matchup basically since its inception. With Prism you know maybe going towards a uh, towards living legend here uh bef- i think after the pro tour then maybe i think i wouldn't be surprised if we see a lot more bravo come out um because it's prism is the <laughs> is the main thing that punishes people trying to bring that deck right now so yeah heading on to old him here old him is an incredible hero in flesh and blood like genuinely an incredible hero just read that hero ability let it sink in And then read it again because that is ridiculous it's like a drone of brutality on your hero a lot of people listening to this are like what is drone of brutality well it was this card back in alpha that used to be busted (laughs) that recycled itself in the deck and blocked for two Uh, but yeah ultima is generally a defensive deck uh, but overall can grind out a lot of value via that hero ability so it can ice react to put cards on the opponent's card on top of their deck or it can earth react to prevent two um it is the premier fatigue deck so when we talk about fatigue most of the time, it's being done with Old Him. Um, and as is true with Guardian, so with Bravo, but particularly true in Old Him, in extremely good equipment, like unrivaled good equipment. We have Crown of Seeds, oh, we Seeds. have Eisenloft, we have the Fridge. Like the armor on this hero is incredible.
1: Yeah, Old Him is like, in my eyes, is like the premier. Like if you are wanting to come into this game, you want to be a control player there is no other choice for you than ultim i think in terms of if you want a purist kind of deck where you have to make decisions about what how you're trying to eke out advantage across the game with cards like crown of seeds with the hero ability where do i want to earth react do i want to ice react do i not want to react like this there's these really cool kind of defensive decisions that come into play with ultim so while i think bravo can really focus more on these kind of like um patches of the game where you're trying to set up really important on hit effects and push through with dominate on the flip side ultim has these heavy hitters but often they're more about, uh, you know, the end game or it's the fact that it's like a byproduct to play an aggressive plan into maybe your bad matchups, but a lot of the time they're just defending. So, you know, I think Ultim in its purest form is a, is a control deck, but you can play it differently. Like you say, uh, Rousey Ancients. Um, I was going to say Ravenous Rebel, not Pumles. Ravenous Rebel, the one,
0: Yeah, so we have, you're talking about Zealous Belting, one. but, you know, you've got pummels in that Belt. deck as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So competitively, I think that Ultim is just a fundamentally very powerful deck. Uh, But on top of that, I think it's one of the great mediators in Flesh and Blood and plays a large factor in shaping the competitive meta each season. It's always there, and it's usually being played, so you have to develop game plans to sort of prepare for that um, cannot be ignored it does suffer from the same downsides as bravo where you're illusionist matchup and it is actually worse than bravo it's pretty bad um, especially if you're playing a more control or defensive deck there's almost no hope against that prism aura build um, but yeah prism's heading out so <laughs> might be might be guardian time what's right.
1: cool is i'm like scrolling down our notes just before you you run into uh, runeblade here every class has two heroes in Class constructed right now, apart from mechanologist. That's really cool. Sorry, I just want to point that out. I <laughs> actually, yeah, I I didn't. Uh, what would you say? That? I never clicked.
0: Yeah, I didn't know but that. I... Con- yeah, I didn't consciously know that actually. So onto Runeblade, which has actually had a lot of heroes usually, but not anymore because we had Chain Living Legend out. Runeblade. Uh, the upside of Runeblade is that, yeah, I mean, you've just been blessed by LSS if you play Runeblade. It's um, a lot of value. Has had some very 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 powerful text on those heroes um, and has benefited from getting most al- upgrades from pretty much every set that it was able to um so good thing the downside of rune blade is sometimes it can be subject uh it can struggle against fatigue right so this actually happened a lot of people know this but back in arcane rising crucible this ride would actually get would actually fatigue um back then and that might actually happen again now because Bloodsheet scalata and your sonata combo what you would use to beat decks that we're trying to do has been banned um that being said there's a lot more powerful cards have been added to the game since Arcane Rising, so probably not as much of an issue, but it is something to consider with these Rune Blades. You do have a deck building constraint, and this is my quote-unquote constraint, that you get paid off for if you satisfy, which is you you want to have a good split between non-attack actions and attack actions. A lot of rune Blade abilities and cards will sort of have that prerequisite on them. So starting off, with Briar. So Briar, my my phrase for Briar is embodiments and erratas. (laughs) So uh, Briar has been erratas from its original design. It used to generate, um, I guess, infinite amount of embodiments of earth for every time you would hit um, during your turn, and then it would generate one lightning for the first when you play two non-attack actions, since now it only generates one embodiment of earth no matter how many times you hit that turn. It is much more balanced now, but as a result, it is not as strong as it used to be. That the debt, the briar deck that really abused that was the Cheerio Briar deck that was created by Tara Patel and co back in US Nationals. And basically, it was. Pretty much the fastest aggro deck, but at the same time, it could use one card from hand to block for like seven if you decided to take the damage and try to pivot on them. So very powerful, very powerful back then. Nowadays, we see more of a reliance on Channel Mount Heroic. So you're not able to generate all those embodiments of Earths, um, and you've had things like Plunder Run and Ball Lightning Bam. So I would say most of Briar nowadays is actually centered around CMH, so Channel Mount Heroic. And my main issue with the class is I feel like it feels a bit high variance for the games where I don't draw Channel Mount Heroic quickly and I don't draw them often, right? The, the card is so fundamentally powerful and so important to your game plan. Um, and like that's just what Briar's about nowadays is Channel Mount Heroic.
1: I, I think the deck is better than... I, I, I did think sort of post-ban and I looked at... Obviously, we had a Briar in top eight at the Pro Tour. And it continues to just really plug away, and it's like this now. It's like this consistent player where it's mm. doing well throughout the seasons. Um, I think I was trying to think about the identity of it the other day, and because if I think about Rune Blade overall, I think you're attracted to Rune Blade if you really like this idea of like split damage, if you like the idea of attacking on two axes, like that is it's very unique. Only Rune Blade can really do it, right? So it is it is that warehouse of Rune Blade, and I also think that's why it's been brought success, right? Like in terms of it is it's is hard to deal with, it is a great sort of design playground to be in in terms of deck building and things like that because you know you get this balance of attack actions and non-attack actions like you say i think for Briar in like a big way um the the draw of channel rock is obviously huge like you say it is a very powerful card as a cornerstone of the deck but i do think that a lot of there's a lot of actual different ways to build Briar um outside of that as well i think maybe you're always going to start with this kind of earth core now because of the deck but maybe you go in a different direction maybe you go like try and be like cheerios based like you say and you play the channel Mountain rock package but then everything else is like super efficient attacks maybe you can go a bit taller again you can revisit cards like stir the Wildwood and and things like that so i do briar it does interest me from that perspective and i think as like sort of these one or two cards from each set that get printed that could have an impact could actually drastically change the way that you could build briar so I'm really excited to see what those what that looks like.
0: <clears throat> yeah, I would say Briar generally has a lot of go, again, long combat chains and not too many hit triggers. There is a different style playing it where you do go more tall. Um, from a competitive perspective, Briar is just kind of a staple in the format. Um, it's consistent. It has continued to be consistent after bans. Shows up in top eights pretty much everywhere. Um, and I know immediately when Uprising was kind of released, Briar was... The go-to aggro deck, I guess. We'll see if that switches over to its rune blade counterpart. But Briar is just a good pick if you want a powerful, a powerful heal. that's going to play in an aggressive form. So next, uh, Payton is one of my favorite heroes. And I'm sure one of yours as well because your you, favorite heroes, yes, won say. you a national championship. Um, this is Viscerai, This is the original rune blade. Um, awesome, awesome class. I, it, so Briar the the dual damage or the the you know arc the mix of arcane damage and physical damage feels more of just like a uh, maybe afterthought is too much of a powerful word, but it, yeah, it's not It's not core to the identity. Viserai is the complete opposite. Viserai is all about split damage. It's all about, you know, presenting a, quite a bit of arcane damage while having these very, very well, well-costed well uh, attacks, you know, things like Shrill of Skullform. I would say nowadays the deck looks a lot like Maverick Skies plus Attack plus Rosetta Thorn. Just a great uh, kind of a great value deck. Generally an aggro deck. It used to have a combo aspect to it. Um, the Bloodsheet, Scalata, and sonata nowadays that is gone um but basically all that means for you as a viscerai player is that you fundamentally you're less powerful in every matchup that the that combo was your tool to sort of cheese your way through fatigue or control it was it was a very easy matchup for you with that um but it was also good against the other aggro decks because you could basically just do a little mini combo on like turn two or three and just get like you know 9 to 19 damage kind of out of nowhere um so has has definitely dropped in power but i know hayden you probably have some more to say that you think it's still up there at tier one eh
1: i just run i just took out a road to nationals on Sunday with it so i mean i do think viscerai is still very powerful the, the the cool like you say it is through and through it is the split damage it is the rune chant based deck right in terms of its damage is really looking to come from both and that's why you talked about fatigue previously right the reason that you can fatigue these kind of decks is because you don't lose cards to prevent arcane damage, right? Pitcher blue, mm-hmm. you can prevent split damage pretty easily, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, I do also think Viseray is like the best Rosetta Thorn deck, to be honest. I think yeah. it just utilizes it so well because of the natural play patterns of like uh, Moverin skies into attack action, that cost two, and to attack the Rosetta Thorn. Uh, it also utilizes creepers so, so friggin' well. Like that's you know that's Viseray Seeds of Agony, and uh, sorry Seeds of Agony, Crown of Seeds in my eyes, right? Like it is almost that power level in Viseray, maybe not quite um the the other thing as well is i think with the banning of Scalada, uh yes it does take away some of the power level it really opens up the design space of this which i think is super cool right so i personally played like a belittle base deck on the weekend i think with you know no Scalada that kind of opens up that kind of play space i do think actually interestingly viscerai has pretty limited scope of design space so i think if you are looking to play a hero like Viserai, you are kind of pretty priced into pretty specific um gameplay patterns which is like this idea of you know, an attack action and non-attack action on a turn and maybe something into like weapon and you are really trying to like either play like a tempo or a pure aggressive strategy. Trying to play defensive with this stick is really difficult because you don't have the payoffs like you just said, right? You don't have scalader anymore but you can still do these kind of com- almost like half setup combos with Mordretide. You can stack up, you know, eight to twelve room chance and sort of go off for like a, a thirty five damage turn. Like that is not out of the question, but it is a lot harder uh than it used to be. And I think the deck can look kind of different. So I do think you can play in the space a little bit, but your design space is very in the middle. It's like slightly aggressive or maybe slightly set up and that's kind of where you have to play now.
0: Yeah, although the cards are not used very often nowadays, Viscera does have um access to disruptive cards like consuming volition, Reek Corruption, I think it is, mm-hmm. um, and a few others as well. And on hit on hit triggers kind of yeah, just in general has on hit effects yep, right has yeah, on hit uh, effects sentence, yep um that we do see less of those played these days but they're always kind of you know, ready to come out of the woodwork there and be popular again i think if you're looking That's for if you're looking for a just a premier aggressive deck that is just place very high value kind of kind of turns um it does have the ability to block, right? It does have the fridge. It is a fantastic weapon. I think viscerai is a great class for you. I'm interested to see where the hero goes if Briar gets banned. Um, and yeah. with Briar goes Rosetta Thorn as well. So that could be that could be interesting for viscerai But overall, pretty much my favorite hero in Flesh and Blood. I think, I mean, Kano's, Kano's in a different class. But uh, yeah, I love viscerai I did love it a bit more when it had the combo <laughs> available. But yeah, it still got it still it's, goes it's in my It's very interesting.
1: Heart. It's very interesting. Like I think if you if you like interesting proactive decks because of sequencing, like sequencing's really interesting to you, this is the right for you.
0: So next up we have Mechanologists. So Mechanologist, when we're talking about Mechanologists, we're only talking about dash. I would say the the sort of the the what you can do with mechanologists you can't do with any other classes mostly persistent board states around items. Prism can do this as well with auras, but, you know, Mechanologist gets to start with an item in play, can tutor for items via Spark of Genius, um, and can develop these board states to actually just overwhelm the opponent in the late game. The downsides is Mech tends to struggle against, like, very fast aggro decks. Um... So this is in in recent memory. This has been the Runeblade decks that have dominated most of our competitive metas uh, up until now. So Mech has struggled a bit with that. It was a very dominant force back in Crucible of War, like it was kind of the deck to beat. Um, but since then has fallen a bit. We we talk about the items there, but there's another way to play Dash as well, which is full on aggressive boost. So basically, you are playing. Pretty much all Mechanologist cards in your deck, you're boosting and banishing and just banishing mech cards and just getting go again on everything. And you are like, I mean, with Teclopounder, um, this, this, this strategy is, seems much, a bit more viable than it was before. Uh, but at the same time, like that strategy will always generally will always struggle into fatigue because you deck yourself pretty fast
1: yeah I, I mean you can also play in the in that between right so you have this kind of aggro deck that can also set up board states persistent board states with items like you say dash is is very interesting i think you can do it is probably the one that has the widest spread of easy accessible ways to build and play it from a super hyper aggressive deck i think about tickler pounder i think about you know, the fact that literally you use your deck as a resource to have inherent go again. You uh, have cards like maximum velocity with really high payoff for these wide aggressive turns. And then you have this like ability to be like, I'm just going to sit behind items and play defense reactions and, and be super defensive. And then you can play in the mid, which we talked about. So I think if you're looking for something that has a lot of flexibility, you really like the the thought of maybe changing between game plans, uh then this, this is like dash is potentially the hero for you. I'm really interested to see where we go next with Mechanologist. I think the obvious place to go as a new mechanologist hero that is what we're all kind of looking for and what that might look like i think some of the items that are kind of underexplored is like cognition nodes like what could you do with that is this the is there a deck you can build which is like it's anti-fatigue deck that kind of never decks out because of cognition nodes or maybe you even are the fatigue what about conviction amplifier you know this dominate on tap like where can we go with some of the other underexplored items and what could they look like gosh
0: sorry you just you just i uh actually met an older gentleman in New York that was uh, pretty confident that his Cognition Node Mechanologist deck was just the next big thing in Flesh and Blood. I just forgot (laughs) about that. I saw it as it hit you there. Um, (laughs) 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 Shout out to Luke Badger. Um, So next up is Illusionist. Illusionist is, I actually really appreciate Illusionist in Flesh and Blood. Originally, I didn't like it, um, but it does something very important for this game, which is it keeps the Guardians in check because those things are, I mean, old him is just, I don't know. It's It scares me. Yeah, Prism does. We'll, we'll have to see about Jermaine. So the, the upsides of, I mean, what you're getting when you're playing Illusionist and the upsides of that is you you develop persistent board states, but it's not via items like that. It's via auras, which can be played at instant speed, um, and the zero-cost auras as well, which can be either played from hand, or, you know, if you get a uh, Coalescence Mirage broken, you can play it for free, which just sounds busted to me. Uh, the downsides is, like, these Prism decks, um, in particular, and I'm assuming Jeremiah would probably follow the same thing. tend to struggle, have struggled in the past pass against like very aggressive runeblade decks but at the same time and almost paradoxically they've been they've been built to actually target those decks so we've seen fatigue prism see a lot of success um it was seeing success at the pro tour it won the calling vegas back in uh back in monarch or yeah back at the release of tales but in monarch the class itself is very fun to play i think if you like if you like wizard but you don't want to go all the way down that rabbit hole of just playing this you know this ridiculous class that's either the greatest class in the world or the worst like prism is a nice happy medium where you can play it you can play at instant speed but at the same time you can default to these under costed big attacks via heralds or via centipies from jermai and aggro out your opponent there's actually the two main archetypes in prism specifically are aggro herald and aura prism there's an amalgamation that plays both but generally it's going to be some mix of of those two archetypes
1: so it's the same Brendan. I said to actually quickly it changed. Uh no, the, the power went out of my house yesterday, so me and Brendan had to split the recording of the pod in two. I apologize, Brendan. But illusionist, I was talking about Prism and saying that I think Prism, if you if you want to play a deck that kind of cares about understanding the game state and when you need to switch gears, I think Prism is kind of that deck, right? You know, when when is the time to start trying to place auras on the board versus when is it time to try and push damage? There's like a real delicate balance, I think, between that four illusionist but prism in particular and i think that's quite a, a cool sort of it's like a cool sort of design i think and you were saying at the start with illusionist you know it, it's growing on you as as the game's gone i think with the blue auras being introduced in everfest i completely agree i think the, the, the deck has kind of changed in that way and there's still more avenues to explore i think as well you know you talked about your favorite card coalesce mirage um you know there's, there's those sort of phantasm cards that we haven't seen as much and, and maybe some of them are going to go into Dramaya, the non-light ones but i, I guess we'll see
0: Yeah, and so from a competitive standpoint, bringing Prism um, and potentially bringing Illusionist, we haven't really flushed out Jermai quite yet and her her spot in the meta. But bringing Prism, you're gonna a lot of a lot of these tournaments, you're gonna have some easy games, and these are gonna be against your Guardian decks. Guardians probably will always be showing up, (laughs) um, at least for a while, Uh, until there's something else that I think takes it out of the meta. I think Illusionist alone isn't enough to deter people from completely playing guardian so you're gonna all it's like it is a bit of a meta call but because old him is so powerful i feel like you're always going to have like some portion significant portion of the meta that's going to be quite an easy match for you the downside of that is usually the rune blades are quite hard uh, we did talk about how people have tech the deck to sort of try to beat beat that but uh yeah ultimately you are a bit split, split and we earlier we also talked about old him being a Kind of keeping the format healthy or like just just determining the format and policing it a bit uh prism does that as well but for these guardian decks like the probably the main reason in flush and blood that guardian decks are not completely rampant and when i say guardian i mostly mean old him um is because of things like like prism really really hard matchup for for old him
1: yep yeah yeah it, it definitely can be and it, it really is kind of a, a big discrepancy against Prism hands where you double aura to start the game versus where you you don't as well. So it's quite an interesting kind of deck to play, and you've got to learn to navigate. I think after that and those kind of those kind of play patterns and decks are something that you might find in other games, especially with permanents And the the cool thing, well the interesting thing at least about Flesh and Blood is those permanents You know they can be hit fairly easily, so you have to try and understand when is the right time to you know like bookend those when is it the right time to uh try and push some push some tempo using your life to then try and assert some table presence so that you can then kind of use that for the rest of the game
0: Mm -hmm. and yeah to close out here just want to re-mention that it is likely that prism will living legend shortly after pro tour 2 just from this road to national season and maybe it'll get uh, a good placing in the pro tour likely will living legend needs to
1: win needs to win the pro tour yeah, well, no, it's not actually. Is I'm it, actually not sure.
0: Are you sure winning it has to win the pro tour with its yeah, accumulation? No, but accumulation via road to nationals as well.
1: Oh, so I mean, no, no, no. I'm not saying. I'm saying if it wants to get points at the pro tour, like yeah, a, a I'm good s- placing yeah, needs yeah. to needs to win at the pro tour to get living legion points. But to be honest, based on the first two weeks of road to nationals, prism might not living legion this season, which is pretty interesting. So it's going to be very close, I think.
0: Yes, I, I don't think that prism will win the pro tour. I think that it. Well, most likely if it if it Living Legends it will get that via Road to Nationals and then Living Legend on the next banner restricted announcement it's coming no matter what because Prism does have such a powerful strategy that in an is just bound to put up results when it lands in the right metas um, even if it's like a local meta it's like a sub meta of whatever the entire world's playing I think the Prism is pretty much destined to get there pretty soon so let's go ahead and move on to Jeremiah Hayden so Jeremiah is the new Illusionist out of the Chronic Illusionist out of Uprising. Sort of about utilizing dragons to assemble a team full of allies and overwhelm your opponent. Uh, Jermai also does have big undercosted attacks, but in the form of centipies instead of heralds, um, but not nearly as much as prism. These centipies do have that phantasm keyword, so they do get popped if blocked by 6-power, so that same sort of, I guess it is a uh, universal illusionist downside to these sort of attacks. Um, but yeah, hey, what are, what are sort of your thoughts on Jermai since it is so new?
1: It's early days. I think the 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 dragons right. That's the the allure and that's the pull to this kind of deck is being able to play with allies. We haven't had a class so far that gets to play with allies. You know, you can see it in terms of you get one in each of the shadow heroes from monarchs. So you get the legendary and those uh, those heroes, but you don't have this this hero, this class that can actually have access to play a lot of allies and, and have a game plan based around it until until we get to Remi. So I, I think that's kind of the, the biggest pull is if you like to play with effectively creatures, like if you're from a, a Magic the Gathering background or, or other games where you have these attacking sort of threats on board that yes, your opponent can interact and deal with, but have permanent sort of threats. And again, it comes into that kind of prism sort of escape, I think, where you're trying to build a deck that can leverage this idea of some permanency on the board to overwhelm the opponent at some point so whether that's through the aether ashwings through the tokens or whether that's through the the allied dragons themselves at what point do you actually the invoke the invocations at what point are you sort of trying to turn a corner and mass? or are you just playing like there could be this very aggressive aggro deck that's you know obviously you're incentivized to play a red line deck because of drama's ability um, and you know the legendary Do you build this sort of like super redline aggro deck, cards like Sweeping Blow, um, you know, things like this that can get involved uh, with that deck and and push it forward? Or do you look down sort of down the line to uh, a more defensive deck? And I honestly think that's where Dromai is probably going to live is either super aggressive or super defensive. And you play this kind of attrition based game with the invocations and the ash wings and just kind of overwhelm your opponent through the long game and through sort of solid defenses and these little chip threats. Like I know you love talking about sticky weapons and although it doesn't take an action point to kill uh your ash wings it is is theoretically you know harder to kill an ash wing than it is to kill a spectral shield, right? So that's quite an interesting piece about, about dromai
0: yeah, so Jermai, Jermai is a Draconic Illusionist, and Draconic does have this sort of red line pitch matters uh, theme. So I assume that a lot of Jermai decks will be pretty red heavy as a result. Uh, the allies, like you said, the allies are similar to auras, but different in the sense that they don't have that Spectre keywords, so they don't take action points. Um, but instead, they have life totals, which also means that your opponent can utilize them for on-hit triggers. So things like, um, I can't remember if Mask of Momentum has hit a player, but just yeah, on-hit triggers. No, it's, it's, it's on-hit. Yeah. So anything that's like on hit like that, they can't actually trigger that off your allies. So it is a potential downside. It does look like it has a natural weakness to things like ninja. Um, so yeah, theoretically bad versus ninja and things that have on hit triggers. But I think versus guardian, while you don't have this, you aren't putting down oras that are taking that guardian's action point. I think if you're landing two dragons a turn, you're still going to be putting the guardian in that same sort of tough scenario where they. It is very unlikely they can clear more than one dragon per turn to be honest but definitely almost never more than two because they lack those go again attacks so it it ends up kind of tempoing them in a similar way to the auras maybe not as powerful but i think if you're landing two dragons a turn which is probably easier to do potentially easier to do than landing two auras a turn um you're actually going to be putting that same spot where they just get templated out and they can't they can't clear the board state
1: I think the the dragons are easier to clear than auras right which is one thing to keep in mind the, the oh, thing I that agree. attracts me the most to and to guardian is ash, ashwings it's really difficult for them to clear multiple ashwings because you have to have a single source of an attack so you know when you've got Kodachi's and he's always kind of go wide threats coming in at you yeah ashwings are a lot less effective but when your opponent maybe has two attacks two big attacks a turn one big attack a turn ashwings have a lot of value and if they're using a full card to pop one of those ashwings you know, you're in a good spot. I think you can play this kind of mid rangey grindy game with Ashwings into Guardian and actually potentially fatigue them even. So it's quite an interesting dynamic.
0: For sure. So speaking of uh, speaking of Ninja, let's go ahead and head on to Ninja. Ninja's been with us since Welcome to Wraith uh, via Katsu. It was, there was a, there was kind of a dichotomy in Alpha between Warrior players and Ninja players. Like, I, I felt like, uh, I felt like Guardian and Brute existed more on the fringe, uh, Brute obviously being much more so than Guardian, but it was really, there was there was mid-range ninja players and these like mid-range warrior players. Um, so Katsu back then was a very, very good deck. We did ultimately see Katsu take down the first Construct tournament, but it was a bit of a different version than everybody's used to. It was actually a control version of Katsu that utilized Drone of Brutality and a defense reaction called Flick Flack. Um, Katsu is kind of, if you look at the design of Katsu, it is sort of the, I don't know, the idyllic aggro deck right it has on hit triggers it can tutor it has combo lines and it's it's super aggressive but because of the defense reaction, flick flack, and Kadachi's being so good against you know old school fatigue strategies, that Katsu deck was actually able to uh, to morph into a control deck because flick flack was able to give the deck so much value via blocking, and the Guardian deck could not deal with the Kadachis over a long period a long period of time, and ultimately Drone Vitality was also busted card. But that's a story for another day.
1: <laughs> I mean, people at home playing the drinking game are thinking it's been a few episodes since Britons talked about Drone uh, Ninja control, so good to hear it back again on the on the show <laughs> yeah. I, I think for me the the ninja class and it's particularly katsu like the i think if you are looking for a hero that can kind of potentially do it all like you can flex your deck really easily like you just talked about control variants mid-range variants we're seeing with flick Flack as well plus hyper aggressive mask orientated decks combo decks with the Lord of Wind line with the leg tap line. Like the, these are the sorts of, uh, this is the, I guess the class really you should be looking at, but particularly Katsu, I think, can kind of do all those things. Will Fly just be a pure aggro deck? I mean, it looks that way. Is Katsu best as an aggro deck? Yeah, probably because of the the combo line that you do have and the efficiency. I mean, the most thing, the thing I enjoy the most about playing a deck like Katsu is the kind of decisions you have to make about the threat density in your deck. And when you go for, you know, your big turns, how you try and set up these like, a, these, um. Combat chains with with the combo cards is really interesting to me. And I think that's probably what people will enjoy about about Katsu. And I think there's still more to be seen with Katsu. You know, Shuko coming into the format as the new legendary from Uprising is super interesting for a Katsu deck. There's a lot of avenues you can go down. I think it brings back cards like Salt the Wound as opportunities and uh, playing a lot more low to the ground aggressive than maybe we'd seen previously. And trying to leverage that sh- that Shuko over the course of a game, especially where an opponent's forced to defend out, changes yeah. breakpoints for Mask, which is huge.
0: So, Katsu becomes pretty interesting when you look at its key equipment of Mask Momentum. Um, there are arguments to maybe sometimes play a different headpiece, but Mask Momentum, ultimately, it does change uh, a lot of the gameplay dynamic, both on your end to try to get that trigger, but your opponents win, and how they block. Well, if they block, you know, maybe your second attack to try to, you know, not have to block your third attack... Um, it, it's a really tough equation for the opponent to try and solve. Also, it's important to mention that Katsu's hero ability is pretty unique. <laughs> so if you if you if you hit, you're able to pitch a zero. Well, not pitch because that's not the word for it in yeah. Flesh and Blood. But this card is zero cost and actually go and search for a card that has combo on it. So it's like inherently reducing the variance that you need in order to complete an entire combo line and your opponent when you're presenting them with just a regular damage has to be like okay does he have the the next card of this combo line already or is he going to go search it so um it's definitely tough on the opponent's side to play to play against a katsu. so far competitively katsu has struggled since probably around crucible of war it was much more of a it was probably more popular I guess there wasn't. There was an aggro deck. That
1: season here. one. Probably. Yeah,
0: yeah. There was an aggro deck back then that didn't see as much play as it probably should have. So we saw a bit of control still stick around, but ultimately fade away towards these from these dash decks that would outvalue it after Dread of brutality was banned. But it has struggled since then, um, just because it hasn't been the premier aggro deck, and we've existed in a lot of metas where you're either on the ultra defensive side or you're playing the best aggro deck, right? And anything anything that's ag- an ag- an aggressive deck but is somehow below the power level of whatever that premier aggro deck is it's just like why are you even playing the deck so katsu has sort of faded a bit since then um it, it that has suffered from some of the things that warrior has where up until uprising i think uprising we actually got some strict upgrades but up until uprising it seems like you got a bunch of side grades and a bunch of different ways to play the to play the hero rather than strict upgrades and a direct increase in power level
1: Yeah, there's a lot of things to explore with Katsu. You know, there's flood of force lines, there's pouncing link sort of builds that people haven't even really sort of dug into, so I think there's something differently there. But you talk about Premier Agridix, the format. What about Fire?
0: Yeah, so Phi is the new Draconic Ninja out of Uprising, and definitely looks to be one of the premier aggro decks. Is it the premier aggro deck? I'm not sure, right? Because it it has to pass, and this this is going to be not a very timeless statement if you're listening to this sometime in the future. But it has to pass the litmus litmus test of so being faster than Briar. If it's not faster than Briar, it's like, what is this class actually giving me? And it needs to give you some better sort of better game plan into fatigue. If it's not as fast as Briar, or some on hit triggers that are really forcing your opponent to block and interact with it. But in terms of archetypes so far from what I've seen from Fi is that it's it's an aggressive deck, right? And it's all the cool part about Fi and the unique part is that it does utilize its graveyard. It's able to start with a Phoenix Flame in the graveyard and return that to hand via Fi's ability at instant speed. So it leads to a lot of cool sort of gameplay lines. But I think overall, if you're looking about like, what is my Fi experience going to be like? long combat chains and sort of big damage and i would i and i'm pretty sure this is correct but in the more competitive versions of five that i've seen not a lot of hit triggers right more just raw damage
1: yep yep no completely true and there's a lot of different avenues you can go down and explore there's ember um there's the ember blade builds there's Kadachi builds you know mask of mintum is definitely very potent in those kind of decks as well so I think we're still at a very early stage of, of fire, but uh, if you are looking for this pure kind of go-wide aggressive deck, you know, a lot of little hits, I think fire is that deck. Fire is the most, uh, uh, sort of, has the longest combat chains in the game so far, so I think that's the deck for you. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, on to a uh, favorite of somebody's here in the podcast. This is going to be Brute, but we can just jump directly into Rhinar. So Rhinar been around since the beginning, was very, very underrated in alpha, actually almost almost unplayed to be honest there was some people playing it but nobody really took it to good finishes at high level tournaments and it it was uh you know it's talked down upon it wasn't until after after that format had come and gone that we looked back and be like okay reiner was probably pretty powerful um it's reiner is particularly interesting because of the hero ability allowing you to intimidate additional cards from the opponent's hand it does have built-in evasion so theoretically it is very very good against Fatigue strategies and defensive strategies that want to sit back, right? Because you can not even let your opponent have the opportunity to interact with you. So things like uh, defensive cards that are a lot of value, like defense reactions, zero for fours, or even unmovables, like they can be om- they can be completely useless against Reinar. At the same time, the deck is relatively aggressive right you can have huge turns with blood rush uh blood rush bellows and we have new cards out of um everfest like swing big that have added so much to the arsenal but hayden i know this is one of your your favorite heroes or if not i think it might be your favorite hero full stop in flesh and blood tell me a little bit about the rhino experience
1: it definitely is i mean it's a it's an attrition based deck that can have combo lines like that is that is what rhino can be but it also has this ability to be an evasive deck you know with the the use of intimidate so you have this sort of hero that plays really well against the kind of defensive end of the format, plus plays, you know, particularly well into decks that kind of want to play around the, the middle of the format where Reiner struggles is against the aggressive part of the format. And that's what's kind of been Reiner's trouble for, I guess, the last year or last two years almost in flesh and blood. Um, but it is the it is probably, honestly, Reiner is probably one of the most unique heroes in this game. The intimidate mechanic is so unique to interact with what an opponent is doing on defense or uh, changing the ability for them to make decisions is not something that, you know, heroes really do. You could say like Ice React out of Ultim is kind of the one that can, can kind of do something similar. But Ryan, and I can, you know, take away our opponent's whole turn, uh, you know, whole turn of defensive sort of ability but they get those cards back. So it is something to really understand about how you want to use these hero abilities. I think where we go with like Reiner next is like Reiner is always going to be, always have the potential to be a meta player because of the hero mechanic and because of cards like Bloodrush, Bellows and Alpha Rampage to be able to disrupt these super defensive decks. So, you know, if we see a, a rebalancing of a format where we go from super aggressive decks to, you know, I guess um, this idea of defensive decks that can kind of take advantage or control decks, whatever you want to call them, then Reiner can, I think, really find a spot in the meta and also it can attack a deck that generally wants to prey on those kind of decks, like an Ultim, Prism. You know, it can also do well into Prism. So I think Reinar is potentially in an interesting spot for this meta. It just depends how aggressive we are. You know, we're looking at sort of a pretty belittle middle right now. So going forward, where will Reinar find a spot? But you do, if you do want to play Brute and you are interested in these kind of these big six attack mechanics there is another hero you can play although i would say it's very different to rhino
0: yeah um i would in, in my opinion i see rhino as the quintessential mid-range deck with flush and blood <laughs> and i think dash maybe competes with it a little bit as well but Reinar, for me defines kind of mid-range in this game uh competitively like hayden said Reinar has struggled a bit since crucible of war in these hyper-aggressive formats dominated by Runeblades. Um, it's just not really where the deck flourishes, which is unfortunate because I think the deck would be very good against a lot of the other decks that are brought to sort of disrupt that meta whether it's old him decks or prism decks um rhino does fit in very well if we see all the rune sort of turbo living legend themselves out of the games i think that rhino could be pretty a pretty good pick um and it could even be a good pick in uprising it, it is it is a meta call deck i think to an extent so if the right meta sort of formulates rhino is an option so on to our on to our next brute, which is uh this is also sort of a I don't know. This is a deck that some people some people love and they stick to, and it's it's sort of it's sort of their identity, and that's Levia. So this is the uh, the, it's a shadow the shadow brute out of Monarch, and I put uh, it's like Reinar, but it's worse. Just kidding. Um, doesn't have that intimidate mechanic. Instead, it does utilize the graveyard and the Banished zone via blood debt. Um, it's hey, you talk to me a little bit more more about Levia because back in Monarch, I remember you were thinking about bringing this, I think, to a major calling because of its ability to maybe go. Fast against some of the rune blade decks, but ultimately ended up um on chain
1: i mean if you're looking at livia the the good thing about levia and what it kind of does is it has this ability to i guess trade up on cards right, so you get to you have to use your graveyard in the banner zone for recycling cards. So you have this kind of chain-esque ability to loop cards, you know, play extra cards from hand. Um, but actually even more so you can actually loop cards, right? But also your your cards just have great return rates. So where decks are attacking into you and you can defend with you know a couple of cards, you can play really well with two to three cards. You know, you're looking at one for sixes, you're looking at three for nine, you know, you're looking at really big damage thresholds uh with with Levia, plus this ability to to play Carrying Husk, which is to be honest, just one of the best equipment in the game. So you i think that's the kind of the draw of Livia. The, the reason that i thought it was good in previous formats is for these reasons you know where we had aggressive to mid-range base formats i think Livia traditionally i think and people might have different opinions but my view of Livia is that it's struggled more into control decks but i do think that one interesting thing about Levia is you can kind of build it in so many different ways you can literally play a Livia deck that's just a rhina deck reskinned as well you know you don't have to play this kind of um graveyard banish zone based sort of thing with Livia. so you have a lot of different avenues to attack the format and kind of build your deck. And I think just livia being a talented brute gives you more options to do that. You have just generally more access to cards, which is, is super cool. So I think if you're a brute player, you have like so many different types of decks you can play between Rainar and livia which is really interesting. And Levia in particular kind of I think accentuates that even more. So that's why I think we see such like a passionate following for Levia, because there's so many different things you can do w- with that hero. So I'm I'm not surprised that we can see that sort of continue to grow, the sort of Levia mains.
0: Yeah. So from a competitive standpoint, I would say that Levia struggles against most decks, but it's more powerful than people assume, and it can really put out. It can put out a lot of raw damage. Uh, just struggling a bit Tough for play. yeah, and struggling a bit for on hit effects and forcing the opponent to interact. Um, but ultimately, we'll see if I'm interested to see if Levia kind of comes out because I do see the Levia builds that I have seen see any success have actually not really utilized the shadow cards or like the blood yeah. deck cards they've actually just kind of been different Reinar decks um so interested to see if levia is able to compete if Reinar is also viable so on to i think this is our last class in flesh and blood and that's wizard and we can't talk about Wizard without talking wizard without talking about my favorite hero which is kano and it's not even particularly close to be honest so Kano is the gentleman's hero of Flesh and Blood. It is usually usually a tempo deck, but re- as recently we saw it's also a combo deck now with the introduction of Aether Wildfire. Kano plays Flesh and Blood on a completely different axis than any other hero class experience possible in flesh and blood you can get sort of versions of that via illusionist and i probably through icelander now as well but kano is it's weird right it's different it only utilizes arcane damage you can play it into speed it's hero ability effectively says pay three draw a card. Not this, not exactly that, but it's a version of it. Um, and it can combo, right? Like, it can, it can combo and do 50 damage, 100 damage on one turn. And that's not even unusual, particularly if your opponents don't have Arcane Barrier. Hitting 100 damage turn, if you went and played 20 games, I wouldn't even think it's that unreasonable you would hit that once in, in 20 games. Like, it's reasonably possible to do that with this card called Aether Wildfire. In terms of... Playing the deck, it's it's quite challenging, to be honest. Like, this is one of those decks where you're going to start playing it and you're going to be like, this is the biggest pile of unusable, unplayable garbage I've ever seen in my life. And there is a journey of enlightenment that you will have to go on before you see the light on Kano and see the potential power level. Everybody everybody can pick up Kano for the first time, go on that struggle and then get a few of those games right, get a few of those ones where you just burn your opponent out, you draw the right cards and you're like, oh, "Okay, I see this, I see the potential." But there is a very very low variance way of playing Kano and consistent way of playing that deck that takes a lot of practice, but I think that is the most rewarding play experience that you can go on in Flesh and Blood is starting on Wizard and particularly Kano losing a lot and then finally turning the corner and sort of gaining some agency and some control in some of these games hayden also played candle at the pro tour um what what are your thoughts on this uh this particular hero in flesh and blood
1: it's probably perceived as like the big brain hero right there's a lot of thinking to be done there's a lot of understanding i mean there is and there isn't i i agree with you to to like a lot of those points right about just kind of what the deck's trying to do and and how you need to Learn the playlines, but honestly, I think once you learn those things, like the the deck does become really, firstly, really fun to play playing Kano decks, um, but also just really interesting. You find new lines all the time, which is is really cool. I think because of this ability, you've got so many, there's so many, I guess branches you can go off in any four card hand because you've got access to the top of your deck. You've got uh, and what what could that card be? You know, so immediately you open up so sort of these um just crazy amount of possibilities that uh, lines of play that Kano could have in any particular turn.
0: Yeah, so like you said, Kano's often touted as the hardest hero to play in Flesh and Blood from an, an intellectual capacity perspective, I guess. The decision trees get out of hand very quickly because you have the ability to utilize the top of your deck and unknown information. But the upside is that Kano usually has a way to win. Um, even when the situation looks quite dire, his, his, his hero ability of the you know, effectively play three draw card is just a portal into the multiverse, right? Because you have things like Tome of Aether when you have Sonic Booms, like you have these really, really just unusual out sometimes that can help you win games that you had no, no right winning to an extent um from a competitive standpoint it's hard to say i think if we're talking about decks that are metacalls, like kano just like really really is that um there's multiple versions right the tempo version if people are not on uh arcane barrier the tempo version can see a lot of success and then the combo version as well uh that is less about arcane barrier but also a metacall. all versions of kano do struggle into illusionist oh cool. where's your next all right, so next up we have Icelander. This is sort of, this is the last hero for us. This is, this is the new wizard out of Uprising. It is a ice wizard that can play out of its arsenal. Can't play at the same sort of instant speed as Kano. Doesn't have that, ins, you know, that, uh, that hero ability of banishing across the top and playing at uh, a lot of cards of instant speed. Instead, so it does it out of its arsenal via a blue card. Also is a frost hero, which gives it an ability to sort of um, detract from the opponent's game plan, right? Give them frostbites, slow them down, eyesores, ice ice inflections, things like that.
1: Yeah, Iceland is like a, a merge between Alexi and, and Kano in some ways. You know, you've got the disruptive, the hate element that is the kind of ice based deck, you know, and you've got access to all the new cars, not just channel like frigid and, and things like Winter's Bite, but now Arctic Incarceration, um, hypothermia, channel the bleak expanse, all these options to play in an ice deck. Plus you have this this wing condition, this kind of like attrition, kind of um like Semi combo end up that you can set up in the end game with Frost X. So, really interesting sort of ice dynamic. Then, plus, you just get to play wizard cards as well if you want to and be a wizard deck. um I guess the biggest, like, I guess, detractor from Icelander is that you don't get to play like a Kano deck, and that's a very unique play style. So, I think if you are looking at playing something like Icelander, you should approach it completely differently to how you'd approach a deck like Kano because it is, it is so, so different. It is I honestly think from playing a few games, it's not even in the same realm. Like, they're not the same sort of things. Other than the fact they interact with arcane damage, use arcane damage, I don't think the heroes are even kind of remotely the same, to be honest.
0: And so from a competitive standpoint, um, all we can say about Icelander, I think right now, is just that the jury is not out. Uh, still <laughs> much to see, I think, from this hero. There are multiple archetypes probably able to be played. One that utilizes more arcane damage, but I think that attack actions are also very playable in Icelander. We've already started to see that. And maybe the sweet spot is somewhere in between. All right, Hayden. So just quickly, let's let's do some closing thoughts. Uh, so picking your hero in Flesh and Blood, just to circle back from the to the very beginning, is just really determining how you want to spend your time, uh, choosing your your sort of experience in this game. Um, I think that getting a good idea of what the other heroes offer in terms of uh, play style and even competitive viability is important before you potentially maybe invest in some of those cards or put in a lot of time to something maybe you don't like. Uh, but my recommendation, and I know this is circling back to the first question of should you play multiple heroes in Flesh and Blood, I think you should try a lot. I think you should try a lot of heroes, figure out what you like and what works for you, and then go with whatever, whatever experiences you find the most
1: enjoyable. I think Limited is a great place to learn sort of the mechanics of the heroes and how they work and the play patterns, and if you like that kind of style. Uh, that's why I think Limited is such an important aspect of Flesh and Blood and a great place to start. And then yeah i mean it kind of depends what you want to get out of it if you're looking to be more competitive but you still want to play in that sort of one hero space then you know look to the heroes that have consistently sort of put up results and maybe the the classes where you can invest into and uh and play those so you know is illusionist maybe that you know runeblade like guardian like those are the kind of ones that, that come to mind immediately in terms of looking for trying to play on that aspect or just whatever you enjoy you know and like Brent says I, I do agree try and play a few things maybe play a main hero but then have a couple of others up your sleeve awesome
0: well we hope you enjoyed that on to this week's google review but before i get into it hayden why don't you tell people if people want to get their review featured on arsenal pass how do they do it and I'm actually gonna interrupt you before you do that, because I have something that came to me. Hayden can't see this because he can't see my camera, but a few more of these came in. They're very limited edition. I don't even I don't even think Hayden has a few of them. These are the Arsenal Past Life Pads. You might have seen us playing with them in person. I'm gonna give one of these out to whoever has the funniest and most creative review for next week. There's not a lot of these. No other person outside of me and Hayden actually owns one of these right now. So if you want one of these and you think you can you can make me and Hayden laugh. Next week's review. Anyway, and hey, tell them how they can get their review featured.
1: Yeah, you get your review into ratethispodcast.com forward slash Arsenal Pass, and uh, it'll let you just hit your preferred platform wherever you like to listen. Leave us a review. It does help us immensely, so we thank you in advance. It just gets us out to, to more listeners. And uh, with that, Brendan, on to you. Awesome.
0: So our review this week is from Sty. this is a hard one to say, S underscore T-B-Y-N-U-M-2. <laughs> Five stars. Uh, it says, "Great Fab podcast, my favorite one that I listen to. A really versatile podcast that provides uh, an overview of the current environment, commentary on some of the top decks and approaches, some discussion of key uh, key points and strategies, and questions and answers from listeners. It is accessible to players of all levels, includes service level conversations understandable for new players, as well as some good points and observations useful for the most experienced players as well. This provide this podcast provides a great weekly update that is essential and useful for." Those of us in isolated areas to provide us with more exposure to the wider community mixes in some great humor as well as banter between Brennan and hayden and draws you into the conversation and makes you feel like you're a part of the team thank you so much for that five-star review um and hopefully i'm i'm really excited when usually we put up these prizes people come up with some really creative ones like uh you know the second most popular man on twitter but hey why don't you sign us off this week we've got a uh, we've got a fab fitness call on the patreon discord to get to
1: yeah i mean i have a favorite review which we haven't read yet so i need to get that on the the one of the pods it's my it's my favorite by a mile let me laugh hysterically so that's gonna be coming in the next few weeks but yeah do do get reviews in if you want them, that's a very nice review actually i was waiting for the punchline um That's going to be it for this week. If you are not already checking out our content that we're putting up on YouTube, please go and do so. We've just put up a a Viserai deck tech from Road to National Season. Uh, Deck Guide is up on Patreon as well. We're also on Twitter, me and Brendan. Brendan is at BrendanAPG. I'm at Fian underscore Dale. Come and interact with us on the Flesh and Blood community Twitter. Uh, It's kind of blowing up with the Fab Fitness Challenge plus just, you know, Road to National Season. Lots of stuff, lots of discourse happening there. So you can find us there. And a big thank you to all of our patrons uh, for all that you enable us to do. Until next week, Brendan. We'll uh, see you next time.
0: Yeah, everyone.